The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, guys, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. And Krakow's back. And today it's a motel. Yeah, it's a motel again, because Mo has a story ready and Kraken doesn't. <laughs> That's fair. We, we, we're just going to go back to the, to the motel motel. Be fine. Day was so great, we're just going to go back. <laughs> well, before we get into that, we did have a couple of announcements. So, um, first of all, we made some updates to the website. And by we, I mean I. Because <laughs> I'm the one who does the website. And we all know if I tried to do it, there wouldn't be a website. Because I have no clue what I'm doing. Well, it also helps that I... I'm a professional designer and have experience with these things, so it's one of my... It's fun, though. So, yeah, we um, we made some updates to the homepage. We also updated the episodes page. So now you can browse all episodes. You can go by uh, topic. So we have, like, serial killers or cryptids and things like that. We also, which I thought was super fun and is actually probably my favorite part of the page... We now have each member of the team's favorite episodes. So there's a section for mine that has stuff like the Stanley Detweiler case and Lindy Sue Beagler. And then there's Crackles, which are interesting. Ranger, Ali, Bobo, and Tanya. So you guys want, you can go out there and you can see what our favorites are. Uh, If we have similar tastes, it might help you pick and choose what to listen to. And that's exciting. And then, Krako, did you want to make the other another announcement, or did you already forget what it was? I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let you handle this one. You have the notes for for the announcements. I have no notes, Krako. You have mental notes. It is fine. You have more brain cell than I do. This is fine. So our other announcement is that we have started a Patreon. So it is linked out from our website, or you can find this on Patreon at The Squank and the Hag. And we have, uh, I think, three tiers available. Uh, One is a dollar a month for just a monetary donation to help us keep the show running. And then the other two have some fun perks. So check that out if you are interested in helping us out. If not, we still love you. At least I do. Maybe Cracker doesn't. It keeps the show running, and it also feeds the Krako. Is that like when you feed gremlins after midnight? Because maybe we don't want to do that. I mean, only if it's after it. Alright, but that's the announcements. They're two pretty big ones. Pretty exciting. So, I'm excited. Very fancy. Yeah, I also... Not that anybody's going to care other than me. I have been experimenting with new color palettes in the murder book. So the past couple have been really, really pretty. Ah, yes, the murder book. Oh, I love my murder book. But yeah, one it's like mint chocolate chip ice cream with like a pink accent. So it's just colors. It doesn't actually have ice cream on it. But it's like this nice minty color with this really dark chocolate brown. And then there's like this really pretty peachy pink. And the other one's kind of uh, like cottage core vibes. You um, you had me at ice cream and then you lost me at no ice cream. You mean you don't just smear ice cream in your journal? I guess. Does that know how that works? That's not how that works, no. But I actually, uh, I had um, Talenti Gelato before we started recording in a Madagascan vanilla bean with a nice chocolate fudge syrup out of a bottle that you just squeeze on it. It was really good. Did did you also have some fava beans and a nice Chianti? (sighs) Ugh. 
You know, we should have like a running count of how many, how often and how many times an episode I make sounds of absolute pain and anguish at things you say. Maybe. Better yet, we need a compilation of them just like, it's just like two hours of just you sighing and groaning. And the occasional pill bottle rattling. Well, I honestly, I took Advil like an hour ago. Otherwise, I already would be like reaching for it. <laughs> That's fair. I had a meeting at work that went an hour longer than it was supposed to. That's always fun. Uh, it would have been even better if you had just stopped at it went. Just like, I had a meeting and boy, it went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, it went. Well, it... Like, I've had meetings go long, and usually it's not a huge deal, but considering that it was supposed, it started half an hour before 5, 4.30, and 5 o'clock is quitting time, so I had to work extra late to have this meeting. Wonderful. And it wasn't a fun topic, but I got here early, and then somehow somebody still was five minutes late. Mm, five minutes. Eh, it's fine. It's fine. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> five minutes. It's fine. Someone locked the attic. I couldn't get out. It's fine. Anyway. But yeah, this we're going to jump into our story because it is. I think it is a little bit of a longer one. This one was researched by the beautiful, wonderful, amazing Allie Beth. So thank you, Allie. I, um, I'm actually really excited about this one. I have heard bits and pieces about the story before and then I, I was going through her research notes and I, I love that we were able to get some really in-depth analysis on it but this is the story of Nanny Doss so Nanny Doss does have a few nicknames that people may have heard her go by but it's, a, it's an interesting story in October of 1954 the 1900s yes into the 1900s technically I guess not wrong. Mm -hmm. Am I ever technically wrong? <laughs> Do you want me to list or are we just going <laughs> to... Okay, fair. In October of 1954, the, across the Midwest and beyond, headlines were just everywhere about Nanny Doss. Nanny was a 49-year-old grandmother living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She had just the sweet, happy, classic appearance you would associate with a grandmother. She has, like, she actually, she reminds me of my grandmother. Like, the hairstyle, like, it, the facial features, not necessarily, but, like, the hairstyle and the glasses style. She has that, she's got that, that typical southern grandma look, so much so that I'm just like, wait a minute, have I seen this woman in Walmart before? Like, what? Exactly. She's just like the stereotypical grandma. Like you can see her baking in the kitchen with her little apron. Honestly, I, if if had I been around during this time, like it's it's not funny, but like there's a chance I would have been one of the victims. Like she could have just said, "I'm making pancakes. Would you like some?" I'm like, say less. Well, she was considered a wonderful housewife. And she made delicious cakes and stewed prunes, which doesn't sound great to us, but it was a very popular dish at the time due to President Eisenhower. Her very cheery disposition and a tendency to laugh and flirt with men made it really hard to believe that she was guilty of any crime at all, much less murder. Or as Ranger says, murder. Yes. How could she be a murderer? Like, I mean, how could this sweet little old lady be a murderer? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. She wasn't just a killer. She was a serial killer. By the time they got done investigating, Nanny Doss had up to 12 deaths that could be attributed to her. And the media coined her a bunch of different names, such as the Jolly Widow, the Giggling Granny, The Lonely Hearts Killer, and Arsenic Annie. That's not horrifying at all. No, no, not, not at all. So even though this takes place in the 20th century, 
tracking down the facts of her life was daunting at best. Especially in the early half of the 20th century, records weren't always kept well, and then you added folklore, family gossip. There was often so many things just clouding the truth. So... Yeah, that or records just weren't kept at all. Yeah. Well, what Allie did was look for consistency among the sources to find the most quote-unquote accurate documentation. So, you know, if five sources say one thing and one source says another, it's most likely the five sources that got it right. So, according to Allie's research, Nanny was born Nancy Hazel on November 4th of 1905. She grew up in Blue Mountain, Alabama, where she lived on a farm owned by her parents, uh, Jim and Louisa, or Lou, Hazel. There is evidence to suggest that Jim might not have been Nancy's biological father. However, she was raised uh, by him with her younger siblings as though she was one of his. So it's possible her siblings were half-siblings, but there's no actual documentation either way. So she was born Nancy, but then it turned into the nickname Nanny. And Nanny did not have a happy childhood. Jim was an abusive man who was known to beat his wife and children. He often kept the kids home from school to work on the farm. So by the time Nanny was five, she was already helping with very difficult farm chores like cutting wood, plowing, clearing weeds and debris from the fields. So I, you know, when I was five years old, I was you know, eating Elmer's glue and coloring with crayons. I mean, that's just a typical weekend for me, yeah. When Nanny was seven. I wonder where the name Nanny came from, because to me that sounds like so like a child gave them that nickname, like, but they were a child themselves when they got that nickname, so I'm just like, because like a child tried to say Nancy, but said Nanny instead. It's possible. Like, my my brother when my niece was little, couldn't say Uncle Dustin and called him Uncle Duck. And she's now in her 20s and he's still Uncle Duck. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Children giving you nicknames is like the, the funniest lottery ever. Either you're going to get like a cool nickname like Uncle Duck or you're going to get just something off the wall weird. Very much so. I feel like you should like start trying to give them like, you know, make up your own nickname to have. Like, I want to go see Uncle Uncle Megazord. <laughs> Except that Megazord is not easy to say, so you know a kid's going to botch that, and then you're going to get an even worse nickname. Yeah, you're right. So when Nanny was seven, the family took a train to visit uh, extended family out in another part of the state. This was so exciting for her because it felt like a grand vacation and this just like extraordinary adventure. And it was a, a huge change from the grueling farm. Was, was that how you felt on your train ride? No, I was just happy I didn't have to drive. <laughs> Fair. So during the trip, the train had to make an emergency stop. And when the train car lurched forward... Nanny was thrown from her seat and hit her head on the metal seat frame in front of her. Apparently, after that, she suffered terrible headaches for the rest of her life. And when she was younger, she had a bout where she would have blackouts and massive depression from the head injury. Yeah, head injury, especially at a young age when things are still, you know, developing, is probably, probably something you should keep an eye on. Well, how many serial killers do we talk about that, as a child, they had a head injury? Fair enough. I mean, we've talked about it before. It's it's a combination of a lot of things, but head injuries usually are one of those. There's, like, several things that, like, if you put them in various combinations, you, yes. you might get a serial killer. So, in addition to rarely attending school, Jim kept his children from socializing as well, even at church functions. He was especially strict on the three girls. 
They weren't allowed to wear makeup. They couldn't wear form-fitting clothing. They weren't allowed to style their hair. And they couldn't basically act in any way that he felt would attract the attention of boys or men. They weren't allowed to attend dances. And Jim was determined to have them work on the farm as long as possible. And then they would just get married whenever he arranged a marriage for them. I don't think that's how that works. I mean, maybe back in like the 1600s. Yeah, but this is the 1900s. Nanny's mother, Lou, was sadly like many women in domestic violence situations. She was stuck in a terrible manage, ma manage, marriage to a man that she resented but was powerless against. While she was often helpless to protect her children, she was a very loving mother to them. Lou enjoyed reading romance magazines and would let Nanny read them once her mom was done with them. Nanny was obsessed with romance and the, the concept of these, you know, very grand stories of true love and, you know, the, the prince in shining armor or knight in shining armor. Same thing. Something tells me it didn't go that way. Just a guess. Well, she would read her magazines and the Lonely Hearts columns and just dream of her future husband and their grand romance. And then around age 15, she started sneaking out at night to meet up with boys in defiance of her father's strict rules. Ooh. I know, naughty, naughty. So it's unknown how many people knew about this? Like, did everyone know that she was sneaking out of the house? Or was a couple people? Did everyone but her dad? Well, some say that her mom knew, but turned a blind eye. Uh, however, Nanny ended up with a reputation in town as a pretty but wild girl who, quote unquote, got around. Wink, wink. Uh-oh. I have a feeling this is going to get back to dad and dad's not going to be happy. I would not be surprised. By the time she was 16, she was working at a local linen factory where she met her first husband, Charles Braggs. They dated for four months before her dad decided they should go ahead and get married at 16. Just, uh, just jumping right into it, huh? Yep. Fair enough. What Jim liked about this guy is he seemed like a very nice young man and he helped take care of his single mother. So after just a few months, they got married. I was going to say, did, did he have a farm that they were all going to work on or something? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Nanny wrote, I married, as my father wished, in 1921 to a boy I only knew about four or five months, who had no family, only a mother who was unwed, and who had taken over my life completely when we were married. So if Nanny thought she was getting away from her father's controlling nature, she was sadly mistaken. Charles's mother was just as controlling as her father and made Nanny's life absolute hell. She monopolized, oh my God, monopolized her- They played Monopoly. <laughs> yes, they played Monopoly. She monopolized her son's attention and was extremely particular of everything that Nanny did. So if her mother-in-law didn't want to go somewhere or do something, no one else was allowed to. Yeah, no, no, no. <sighs> yeah, like, I know I'm pretty easygoing about stuff like this, but like, if Chris wants to go somewhere and I absolutely don't want to go, I just don't go. You should, next time that happens, you should just jokingly be like, no, I don't want to go. You stay here. I couldn't do that, though. That's so mean. <laughs> Like, just to, just get the reaction and then then <laughs> explain the, the joke. <laughs> explain the joke way after when he's already mad. From 1922 to 1927, Charles and Nanny had four daughters. Amidst all this, Nanny began to drink heavily, and her casual smoking habit became a chronic issue. The marriage had been falling apart for years, and both of them were unfaithful to the other. Charles would disappear for days, and Nanny would take the opportunity to spend time with other men. However, Nanny also did disappearing acts. She was a magician. So Charles has even been reported as saying, She was quick-tempered. Her whole family is like that. 
Sometimes she would get mad for a reason, and sometimes it seemed like not. She'd pout and then go off for days or weeks, often with other men. In 1923, tragedy struck when the two of their daughters, Gertrude and Zelmer, died suddenly as infants. I'm, I'm sorry to stop you there, but I, I can't pass this one up. It, next D&D campaign I do, there's going to be an elf wizard named Zelmer. <laughs> He's the local shaman. Reports said that they were fine at breakfast, but dead by lunch. And at the time, it was determined that they died of food poisoning, and it was just left at that. However... Charles was suspicious. He said that when Nanny was mad, he refused to eat or drink anything she had prepared. That's probably a wise idea. And then not long after the deaths, Braggs left and took their daughter Malvina with him. Nanny was left then with their other daughter, Florence, or uh, sometimes called Florine, and her elderly mother-in-law. So he took their daughter and left his mother-in-law or left his mother sorry left his mom just like taking taking the child you're on your own good luck i, I get this might be a situation where uh he didn't want to go no one else was gonna go but he was like sorry i'm going you're on your own maybe well not long after he left his mom died of natural causes got a big question mark i don't know if that should be in quotes or not but just as natural causes Nancy took, or Nanny, took a job at a cotton mill to support herself and her daughter. It was nearly a year before Charles returned with Melvina, but a young divorcee and her child were with him. So he came back a year later with a new chick and her kid. That's, that's not going to upset Nanny in any way, no. Oh yeah, no, that's fine. I don't see a problem here at all. What are you talking about? But at this point, Nanny took her two daughters, Florine and Melvina, and went to live with her mother. They then got divorced in 1928, and he was he was the luckiest of her husbands because he got out of the marriage alive. <laughs> Another thing that I want to mention is uh, I'm I'm loving like the names in a lot of the stories we get. How do we get so many interesting names? Because Again, you've got your alchemy shop owners, Melvina and Florine. Yeah, they probably live down the street from... Um, Zelmer. Elmore. No, um, Lucius Elmore. Oh, yeah. I forgot that guy. I forgot about <laughs> that one. How can you forget Lucius Elmore, dude? Listen, I forget many things, all right? That's, that's, just, that's just one of them. That's just one of many things. Fair. In 1929, this is a year after the divorce... Nanny started to look at the Lonely Hearts columns and met and married Robert Franklin Harrelson through one of the ads. She was smitten by him. He was 23, handsome, and wooed her with romantic letters full of poetry. In response... She sent racy photos and sexually charged letters, which I find kind of interesting that he would write like really sweet poetry and things like that. And then she's just like, oh, yeah, here's some racy pictures. You imagine if Romeo and Juliet went that way, like <laughs> Romeo was just out here reciting poetry outside the window and then Juliet just shows up and just, you know, Straight up just flashing out the window like it's <laughs> like it's Mardi Gras or something. With Harrelson, Nanny thought she finally found the romance she desperately wanted. However, the honeymoon phase ended pretty quickly when she realized that not only was her husband an alcoholic, but he had a felony assault charge. I feel like if he's not, like, if that's a past thing, you know, if he's currently still drinking heavily and still getting felony assault charges, it might be a problem, but, you know. Well, he was still heavily drinking. I don't know about the felony assaults. If he's still assaulting people and drinking, then it's a problem, but. This was her longest marriage, though. It lasted for 16 years. By the early 40s, Melvina and Florine had grown and were married on their own. 
1943, Melvina gave birth to her first child, Robert Higgins. Uh, little Robert was followed two years later by a sister. However, she did not survive more than an hour or so after birth. At the time, doctors had no idea why the baby died. However, Melvina would later report that in a haze of the... Back then, they would use ether. You know, nowadays you have, like, you get the, the shot in your spine and you know, modern medicine and all. Nowadays, we just sum it up as, or just, just, you can just summarize it as they were out of it. Well, I mean, the, the meds these days are much different than what, like they would just straight out, put ether over your mouth to like, <laughs> so you were like messed up back in the day in the delivery room. Basically like the plague doctors, you got ghosts in your blood. You should do cocaine about it. Yeah. Well, between the haze of having the ether in her system and she had a very long, difficult delivery, she thought she saw her mother stick a hat pin into her daughter's head. And then it was shortly after that that the baby was declared dead. Now, um. that is... It's rough because... And she didn't want to trust her memory because she was absolutely exhausted drugged and she might have been you know dreaming or hallucinating or something but a couple days later she shared the concern with both her husband and her sister they were stunned but they had also seen nanny with the pin however they it's hard to believe that she would kill her granddaughter. Um, and they never reported anything to the authorities. Yeah, but I feel like if multiple people saw the pin, then you kind of can do it a little more, but... <sighs> it's rough. And then a few months later, Melvina had a fight with her husband, and she went to her father's house, where during this time, she left her two-year-old son with his grandmother, Nanny. And on July 7th, 1945, he passed away from asphyxia of unknown causes. Yet again, no one reported anything to the authorities, even if they had suspected she killed him. Even after she collected a $500 life insurance policy that she had taken out on her grandson. I feel like there's a lot of red flags that no one's looking at here. Mm-hmm. Gee, they were left alone with this one single person the whole time, and then they died of suspicious causes that we can't figure out why. Gee, I wonder. So by this time, Nanny was fed up with her violent alcoholic husband. And in September of 1945, Harrelson had been out drinking with friends who they just returned from fighting in World War II, so they went out and had a good old time. When he got home, he was extremely drunk, and he demanded sex from Nanny, and when she refused, he threatened her, which caused her to give in, because she didn't want to get beaten up. While working in her garden the next day, she found his hidden jar of corn whiskey. She poured out some of the liquor... And replaced it with liquid arsenic. I was waiting for that. I was wondering how that was going to happen, but there it is. There it is. He was dead by September 15th, 1945. And no one suspected a thing. No one suspected anything at all. The records here get a little hazy, but according to a family genealogist, Sherby Green, from the death of Harrelson in 1945 to Nanny's subsequent marriage in 1947. She might have traveled a bit, uh, probably made it to places like New York and Idaho. I'm not sure how they figured out New York and Idaho, because those are two very different places. No, they're, are they close enough where it's like the whole South Carolina, Georgia thing that we talked about before, where like, if you're close enough to the line, you might as well be in the other state. Krako, do you know, do you have any idea where New York and Idaho are? Um, yes. 
Where's New York? It's um, it's in a place with some stuff, some things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a hint. Part of New York touches Pennsylvania. I mean, I know the general area of where it's at on the map, but now if you ask me to point directly to it, I'm probably going to point at something completely wrong. It's above Pennsylvania and a little east. Okay, so where's Idaho? It's where all the potatoes are. Yes. I'll give you another hint. It's nowhere near New York. (laughs) That's fair. I mean, maybe we want, you know, some some potatoes near the pizza so we can put potatoes on pizza. So during this time, a man named Hendrix was also connected to her, but it's unclear if they were ever married or if he was another one of her victims. Well, was his first name Jimmy? Just says Hendrix. I don't know. I don't think it was Jimmy Hendrix because I'm pretty sure Jimmy Hendrix did not die in the 1940s. Right, you act like I know these things. It should be clear by now. I don't know these things. You looking for the Advil? I'm... I'm trying... No, I'm looking for inner peace. You will find none of that here. Anyway. We do know that Nanny met Arlie Lanning through... You guessed it. Probably didn't, because it's you. A Lonely Hearts column. Who I would have never guessed. She moved to Lexington, North Carolina to marry him in 1947. But... Lanning turned out to be just like Nanny's other husbands, a heavy drinker with a wandering eye. He was a little more mild-mannered because he did not lash out with violence. However, Nanny this time disappeared from the marriage. She would run off for weeks or sometimes even months at a time. And she was claimed that she was visiting family, which was sometimes true but there were other times where he had no idea where she was or what she was doing in 1950 nanny did stay with her sister dovey for a time who was bedridden due to cancer and it was not long after nanny arrived that dovey died i will say uh that that comment about uh Lanning had no idea where she was or what she was doing that's me with myself a lot of times i don't know where i'm at or what i'm doing I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm of the age, like there's a certain point that you hit in life where you just end up going into rooms and you're like, why am I here? Yeah. Or you end up even worse. You end up opening up new tabs and you're just like, why did I do that? Well, today I had Chris did that to me. He came up here and he just, he stops in the middle of the room and he looks at me and goes, why did I come up here? That's fair. Like, I don't. I don't know. It's still not as bad as the time he called me at work. So this was this was back when we were still in the office, pre-pandemic. He called me at work and I grabbed my phone and I went into like a little conference room that's near my desk. And I was like, okay, Chris doesn't call me when I'm at work. He never just, just like calls me while I'm at work. So yeah, so if I see him calling, I grab my phone. And same way with my parents. So if Chris or my parents calls me while I'm at work while I'm working, I would run into a conference room to answer. He called me, made me do all that, Mm -hmm. to ask me where he put his wallet. Lovely. Wonderful. I'm like, are you you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'm like, where did you put your wallet? Let me guess. It was was somewhere like right in front of him. Probably, yeah. It was a perfect opportunity for me to segue into calling Bobo out. Um, We had a moment where uh, she was just like, uh, where are my glasses? Just looking all over the place. Like, I can't find my glasses. Where are they? Have you have you seen where I put them? Was she wearing them? She was wearing them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least she didn't lose them. Yeah, they weren't lost. So when Nanny actually was in town, she played the doting housewife perfectly. She was a devoted member of the local Methodist church. And they actually pitied her due to her husband's reputation. He was an alcoholic and yeah, oh my God. And she was seen as a long suffering, possibly naive woman. And people wondered if she knew how her husband behaved. Cause again, wandering eyes, you know, yada, yada. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, when he suddenly died in 1952, the community rallied behind the grieving widow. I'm just wondering, like, like what's going on with this Lonely Hearts column that is just like, this is speed dating for alcoholics. Well, I mean, back in the day, they didn't have the internet, so people would take out classified ads. Yeah, but it's just, it's just how, how is it everyone that she's been with out of those columns happens to be an alcoholic? Either bad luck or she has a horrible taste in men. Why not both? Doctor said that Arlie died of heart failure on February 16th, 1952, at the age of 52. They didn't do a full autopsy to find out what caused the heart failure. And doctors just chalked it up to years of heavy drinking. He was a known alcoholic, yada yada. So he had left the house to his sister. So Nanny moved out and went to live with his mother, which is interesting, but I don't know. Okay. His mother was ill. And not long after she moved there, the house burned down. And Nanny ended up with the insurance payout, even though the house wasn't in her name. How does that work? I, I'm not sure. But back then, it was a lot easier to commit insurance fraud, too. Clearly. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, no computers, different agencies and people. And, you know, like, it was very easy. If you were manipulative, sweet-talking, yada yada, you could get them to do a lot of things. Is it just a case of, like, something like this happens, they send the fire truck out and a guy in a suit with a big check, and it's just like, all right, you're the only one here, you get the payout. Maybe. But this next part is it's probably going to shock you, Kraken. I'm waiting. Soon after, her mother-in-law died suddenly in her sleep. I never saw that one coming. How could this have happened? At this point, Nanny was on the move again. For $15 a year, Nanny joined a dating service called the Diamond Circle Club. She was sent a list of men looking for love each month, and she would reach out to any of them that caught her attention. Unfortunately... Richard L. Morton of Emporia, Kansas, was the one she settled on. Unlike the other men that she had married, uh, Morton was a little older at 63. He had grown children from previous marriages, and he seemed more settled. Most importantly, he wasn't a drinker. Hey! Yay, we found a non-alcoholic! So... She was hoping this was finally going to be that romance that she craved. That perfect, you know, sunset picnic in the tropical island romance. So they got married in 1952. I have a feeling that's not the case. So it wasn't long before Nancy realized that even though her new husband was sober, faithful he was not. So Nanny started looking into the Lonely Hearts columns in search of a new man while she was planning her husband's death. Here we go again. That it's, so basically, it's, it's uh, if you happen to get matched with this woman and you see her pull out the Lonely Hearts column, you need to just leave. Yeah, well. Well, she's looking at the dating ads again. Time to go. This is when she got word from her mother, uh, Louisa. Her father had died, and her mother was in poor health, so Louisa was going to come stay with them. Lou arrived in January of 1953 and died complaining of severe stomach pain just days later. Not suspicious at all. Not suspicious at all. So this is when Nanny turned her attention back to her husband. And on May 19th, 1953... He joined the list of dead husbands. Poor guy. That's it. Yeah. Well, not after, not long after he was buried, 
she was off on her next romance. Did no one find this suspicious that it's like she's just looking through like the uh, the, the personal ads in the newspaper at the funeral or something? Like, I know she didn't actually do that, but. <sighs> well, I think one of the one of the reasons it kind of went under the radar a little bit is if you'll notice a lot of these happened all over the country different states different towns so there you, you, you know if it, if this was in one town maybe someone would have been like you know this is a little suspicious. she has a lot of bad luck yeah but because you know she was in, you know she's from Alabama she ended up in North Carolina she ended up in Kansas she ended up in you know she was all over the place you know, Morton died, and leading up to his death, she had been corresponding with a man named Samuel Doss in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was a 57-year-old highway inspector and minister. He had lost his wife and six children in a tornado in 1945. Which is one of, like, m tornadoes are incredibly terrifying to me. I actually, I work with someone who lives in Oklahoma. And she'll just be like, oh yeah, we got a tornado warning. Yeah. And I'm like, you do, are you in a bunker? There's been a few times where tornadoes have passed through and over my house. And over as in, like, we've been in the middle of it before. And but it didn't do anything. It just it just went over. But oh my god! You knew you were in the middle because the wind picked up, and then suddenly it was very That's still. Terrifying to me. And there was no wind. And then there was wind again. I have like nightmares about tornadoes and stuff. Have you ever heard one come through? No, we don't get them up. Like I think there have been two small tornadoes in southeastern Pennsylvania in my life. They're rare here, but it's not impossible for it to happen. But um, kind of sounds like a train. I've heard that. I've heard that. It's horrifying. Yeah, I've heard that. I've just never experienced it. You don't want to. Yeah, no, we just have uh, blizzards and sinkholes. Fair. So uh, there's a there's a town in Pennsylvania called Sinking Spring. The reason it gets that is that it's getting lower every year. <laughs> It's literally sinking against the ground. I feel like, I feel like it should kind of, you know. Well, it's like, you know, it's like knows. fractions of an inch each year. Like, it, not yeah. But what happens when one day it's not fractions and it just drops? Well, there's a reason I don't live there. Fair, but why would anyone live there? It's a nice town. It's pretty. Man, one day it might be in a crater. Yeah, you never know. Maybe, probably. Perchance. Mayhaps even. After he lost his family, he had been living alone and finally decided he wanted to find someone to spend his later years with. Nanny presented herself as a good Christian woman. And he's a minister and he's lonely and she seems sweet. So he was head over heels and proposed. They got married in June of 1953 barely a month after her last husband died. I have a feeling the new guy didn't know about that. Yeah, I have a feeling. So, Doss did not drink or smoke. He was not a womanizer, but she still found fault with him because he wasn't perfect. Of course. He was an I mean, who is? Yeah. Well, apparently, he was a frugal man to the point of being a miser. He was adamant that romance magazines and novels would not be brought into his house. He felt that television should only be watched for educational purposes and was against the the sappy love shows that Nanny loved. Like the soap operas and the, you know, just fantastical romance. Fair. And in Nanny's mind, he was too square 
and too boring. So she went from one end of the spectrum of abusive alcoholics who cheated on her to a man who just didn't, you know, he was a little too clean. She wants somewhere in the middle, but she goes from one end to the other. Yeah, well, she would torment him by smoking around him and wearing clothing he felt was too revealing. Eventually, she left and returned to Alabama because she was just fed up with his rules. And he was immediately sorry, sent a letter after her begging her to come home. She only agreed after he allowed her equal access to his bank account. And he had taken two different insurance policies out on himself with her as beneficiary. I, I feel like if someone asks you to do especially that last one, both of these are big red flags. But that last one makes me even more suspicious. I would have been like, you know what? I, I take my letter back. It's fine. You don't have to come back. That's OK. Yeah. Like the equal access to the bank account. If that was the only demand I could I can see it. So, like, Chris and I have a joint bank account for yeah. bills and things like that. So, like, if I had to go grocery shopping or something like that, it's not, you know, if you are in a trusting equal marriage or relationship, it doesn't have to be a marriage. But, you know, you you are trusting equal partners and all that stuff. You understand and you have an agreement. You see eye to eye on it. It makes sense. Being like, hi, yeah, you have to take out two different insurance policies on yourself, and I need a beneficiary on both of them. That's just... Yeah, no, I would have been like, no, that, that already tells me that you're going to commit murder. Yeah, especially when, uh, oh, let's see, all of your la other husbands died. Suspiciously. Mysteriously. Hmm. Yeah. Before we continue on, I just thought of a terrifying statement for you. Yes, Krakow can be trusted with money. Put me in a joint bank account with you. Krakow can definitely be trusted with, with the finances. Oh, I, I can make an account with 50 cents in it and share the account with you. Fair. And then it's just immediately gone and you call the bank to figure out what happened. And it's like someone came in demanding access to the bubblegum machine and they had to make a withdrawal immediately. <laughs> It's really sad, but true. He agreed. He put her on the bank account. He took out the insurance policies. So she came back. And in September of 1954, I don't know, Krakow, you want to take a guess here what happened? Um, they lived happily ever after. Sure. He ended up in the hospital with severe stomach pain. This wasn't a good story at all. The doctors didn't know that Nanny put arsenic into the cake she made for him. He was diagnosed incorrectly with a severe digestive tract infection, and he was hospitalized for nearly a month. Because he had a month to get it out of his system, he was released in October. But suddenly, just a week later, he took a sudden and severe downturn and died. I know a big thing is that uh, medicine wasn't, you know, they didn't have all the things that we have now, but like, mm -hmm. how, how are you so, like, words? How did they misdiagnose it like this and they didn't think, you know, let's double check, let's make sure. Well, they didn't have the kind of testing we have these days. So now you can test for an infection and find bacteria. You can also do a tox panel and find, like, a tox panel you have to know what you're testing against. But they'll, like, if they are they suspect poisoning, they can do, like, the top ones. So, like, if it's a rare poison, it's not going to show up. But, yeah. you know, back then, they, they didn't have those kinds of things. So they had to go pretty much off of the symptoms. They had to say, okay, you have severe debilitating stomach pain um you know this and that is happening and you know she she must have gotten the dosage wrong so is that something you have in your murder book just just you know for future reference for you know completely unrelated reasons that uh they can't detect rare poisons they, they probably won't detect that one not can't but probably won't detect that one because they'll list it against the top ones and it probably is not on there no. My murder book is just research notes of crimes for the podcast. Fair. 
I don't have lists of poisons that they don't test for. Don't you, though? No. Because I don't want to kill anybody. See, I feel like that's... As much as I sometimes say I want to kill you and how you drive me up crazy, you know, you drive me crazy, I never actually would. And I don't actually want to because I would, as bonkers as this sounds, I would be sad if you were gone. Aww. I didn't say that. Let's move on. I'm gonna, we're going to just, I'm going to take that clip and I'm just going to put it into the soundboard. <laughs> so this time, you know, the first hospitalization, they weren't suspicious, but now they were. And they felt something wasn't right about the sudden death. If he had been, if he had had an infection and, you know, they had treated it and he went home, he, he should have been fine. So in Oklahoma at the time, you could not order an autopsy without the family's permission when no apparent crime was committed. However, doctors requested the autopsy and she gladly agreed, saying that she hoped they found out what it was so they could save other people's lives. Did she think they wouldn't find it? She did. Little did she know that the autopsy revealed he had enough arsenic in his system to kill a horse. She, okay then, that's a little, um... She didn't take chances the second time. No, she did not. Yeah, there was only one person that could have poisoned him as well. So she was arrested for his murder on October 30th of 1954. And I'm going to take a break right now just to say that I, I know we have, you know, we have like a lighthearted attitude sometimes, but I do sincerely feel so horrible for these men that were just duped. Yeah. You know, she, like, I've said this before to, like, Chris and I have talked about this, about when people are unfaithful in a relationship, just leave. If you're not happy, just leave. And I never until now thought about the, if you're not happy, instead of murdering the person you're with, leave. It's as simple as that. You can just pack your stuff up and leave. No one is going to stop you. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I know, I know in abusive relationships, it's not that easy. Because you... Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's a little different, but... That's that's a lot different. Um, because you, um, you, you... You are terrified. And you have no idea what they might do to you. But in these cases, like this guy, he was a minister. He was a little strict, a little frugal. But he wasn't a monster. And she did leave. And she could have stayed gone. Like, she voluntarily came back and murdered him. So, like, why? Why? Just why? Like, why didn't she just say, Hey, I'm good, instead of, No, give me all your money and get two life insurance policies that I can cash out. I mean, I like, think that's the answer there. Is I know. Money. She did it for the money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's just... It's just like so, it's so messed up. Just, hey, just, bro, just, just leave. Don't kill them. Leave. It ain't have to be like this. Yeah, none of these was self defense. None, like it's not like someone charged her with a gun and in a struggle she shot him and they died. She poisoned them with enough arsenic to kill a horse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of arsenic. Where does someone get that much art? Like. Isn't arsenic hard to get your hands on? Or is that maybe just nowadays? I honestly... I don't know. Well, I feel like now it's a controlled substance. Maybe back then it wasn't. I'm, I'm trying to... I was going to look and see if I could find something on that. Because I'm not sure. Also, I'm doing more things to get me on watch list. I just straight up Googled how to get arsenic. Because I'm just like... Because Google wasn't helping me when I just Googled arsenic. So... It's gonna be fine. It's like it's it's for research. It's fine. I mean, you're probably already on all the lists anyway. I would not be surprised. All right, so 
Nanny proved to be a frustrating and exhausting suspect for the Tulsa police. They had to take shifts interrogating this woman. During the t- this time, she would giggle and laugh off their questions, denying she had anything to do with the death of her husband. However, they also started digging into her past and realized that she most likely killed not just her previous husbands, but also many of her blood relatives. After hours of her flirtations with investigators, one finally got through to her after they took the romance magazine she was reading. And after some coaxing, she finally admitted admitted to murdering four of her five husbands. I I don't I mean just vibing in the in the interrogation room just reading the romance novel probably looking for her her next man browsing some lonely heart columns in the interrogation room, you know. Yeah, like you got a pen, I want to call this guy. Yeah. So this is where it, like it's already been a messed up story. But the reason she got the moniker giggling granny was from the cheerful laugh that she would make when explaining her crimes. Yeah. Yeah, when they asked her why she killed Doss, the the last husband, she said he wouldn't allow her to watch her favorite TV show and she wasn't allowed to turn the fan on during hot summer nights. Is that that's a good reason, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like According to her, every husband had some sort of flaw that she just could not forgive and had to, quote-unquote, do away with them. She said, I was searching for the perfect mate, the real romance in life. I don't think this is how that works. Yeah, I don't think so either. She also blamed the childhood head injury for her adulthood and claimed that the uh, glasses she wore were for her for poor eyesight, but to help with the headaches that she still suffered from. And she claimed that the accident caused her to, quote unquote, think crooked. Feel that. <laughs> uh, when they asked about her mother and the deaths in her family, she became extremely upset, denied killing anyone who was a blood relative. She was visibly agitated at the accusation of murdering her mother, saying she had no reason to kill her mom and that she'd get down on her knees and crawl anywhere for her mother. So authorities in multiple states did end up exhuming her husband and some of her family members. They found arsenic in all of her husband's and her mother, and the other bodies showed signs of being smothered. She was charged with each of her husband's murders, but the only case to be prosecuted was that of Doss, the, the minister in Oklahoma. By the time things began to go to pretrial hearings, Nanny was well known in the papers with her many colorful nicknames. And she seemed to love the attention, giggling, making jokes. During her first TV interview, the cameraman recommended she remove her glasses. He joked, you might get another husband if you look nice, to which she responded, ain't that the dying truth, before laughing at her joke. All that whole... That whole thing right there, that whole interaction was just unnecessary. Yeah, and the media ate it up. Of course, but why, why the cameraman out here cracking jokes? During all this media attention, John Keel of North Carolina came forward, stating that he and Nanny had been writing letters for a while after meeting through a Lonely Hearts column. She sent him a prune cake at one point and promised to come out to North Carolina as soon as she got done tending to an ailing aunt. One can only imagine his surprise to find out that the woman he was talking to was a black widow. 
And he swore off Lonely Hearts hats after that. I don't blame him. That man stayed single for a long time. <sighs> yeah. So, given that Nanny had confessed, her defense team requested that she be found not guilty by reason of insanity. A judge ordered that she be sent for a 90-day evaluation at the state asylum in Veneta, Oklahoma. She was excited to leave her jail cell for a while, saying, Now maybe I will get some rest and I won't have to answer so many silly questions. Maybe those docs at the hospital will teach me to think straight. Okay. Uh-huh. At the hospital, she was a model patient. One of the supervisors said she would often sit giggling at nothing for hours and then suddenly enter a deep depression. At the end of her 90 days, the hospital declared that she was mentally defective with a marked impairment of judgment and willpower and recommended she be committed. However, the prosecution did not agree with this assessment and a sanity hearing was held. For three days, a jury listened to experts on both sides argue whether they thought Nanny was sane. Four doctors for the prosecution countered the assessment made by the hospital, with one declaring that Nanny was a sociopath, calling her a shrewd, calculating female who feigned insanity to escape the electric chair. The cleverest criminal I have ever interviewed. And apparently, she laughed out loud at that comment. All the laughing and giggling is just, that's, that's the most horrifying part. It took the jury 15 minutes to deliberate, and they declared her sane. Now that the insanity plea was off the table, a murder trial could happen. However, before that could occur, she pled guilty to murder on May 17th of 1955 and was sentenced to life in prison. The judge opted not to sentence her to the electric chair as a woman had never been executed in the state of Oklahoma and did, he did not want to set that precedent. I mean, that's fair, but... Yeah. Well, this is a sentence I never expected to read. She was thrilled to go to prison, even seeming to look forward to it. She's going on a little vacation? Yeah. Well, she'd have access to movies and television. She'd be allowed to continue indulging in her beloved romance novels. In an interview she did not long after entering prison, she said that she was working in the laundry, which she didn't care for. But every time she offered help out in the kitchen, she was denied. Gee, I wonder why. Let's see, you're a serial poisoner. Hmm. Over time, she seemed less thrilled with her circumstances and tried to insinuate that she had been tricked into signing a confession. In a later interview, she appeared much more depressed, saying that she wished North Carolina or Alabama would go ahead and convict her so she might get the electric chair. It's a weird thing to want, but... That's a huge swing. Yeah, it's a huge swing to go from being thrilled to going to prison to asking for the electric chair. Another surprise? Her family never visited her while in prison. I am shocked. Probably because she murdered most of her family. Yeah... She remained in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma, until she died of leukemia on June 2nd, 1965. Her victims were four husbands, two of her children, at least one of her sisters, her mother, two of her grandchildren, and one of her mothers-in-law. Some believed that another sister suffered a similar fate, and others blame Nanny for the death of Arlie Lanning's nephew, who lived with them briefly. Uh, those have never been proven. But many wonder why she committed all these murders. She did have a reason, or, you know, she, she stated reasons for murdering each of her husbands. Mm -hmm. But she never admitted to any of the family deaths. While some have pointed to insurance money as a motive, minimal policies were ever claimed. Perhaps the head injury may have played into it. Maybe she liked to kill for the sake of killing, but we never got a full confession on those. There was no hard evidence as well, so we'll never know. But she... 
she was she was convicted of what they could convict her for. Yeah, I was going to go the route of the insurance money, but if minimal policies were ever claimed, then yeah, that kind of throws that out the window. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but is it is it weird of me to say that, like, given the chance and with like a lot of supervision, I would like to try one of these cakes minus the arsenic. Just a prune cake? Yeah. I want to see what I want to see what kind of cook she was. Oh, her prune cake. Okay. I was like, I'm pretty sure you can find a recipe. No, 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 no. I want to see like how good of a was she a good cook or, you know, the the people who tried her cooking apparently, you know, didn't live long enough to explain, but with a lot of supervision and with the food being closely monitored, I think it might be okay. I mean, it sounded like she was a good baker. Like from you know, people ate her, but like, I'm thinking, you know how, like, at least for me, when I think of my grandmothers, uh, one still with us, one not, I always think of the baked goods. I always remember, like, so fondly that it's like, it wasn't the most astounding, gourmet, crazy baked good, but it was always so good. You know what I mean? It's also like thinking about my mom. The home cook stuff, it just hit different. It does. And, like, there's just something about your mom or your grandma baking for you that's just amazing. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's magic. It's love. Love is the secret ingredient. I mean, yeah, because for some reason it'd be hitting different, so. Well, like, that's the thing. My mom has given me some of her baking recipes. Like, I have the exact recipe for her lemon squares. But when I make them... Not quite the same. They're good. Don't get me wrong. They're good. Yeah. But it's not the same. I actually have thought about this. And <laughs> this episode's already really long, so this might get cut. But um, mm-hmm. you know how they always say stuff is made with love. Is it because we all do this and moms do it too? Mm-hmm. You always lick the spoon while you're baking. Is it the spit? Is it the spit that adds the magic love flavor? I mean, this is going to sound really weird, but uh, and I'm probably going to get a weird look from the other person in the room with me. But um, if you want, I can make you two batches of cookies and spit in one batch and you can tell me which one tastes better. But I mean, please don't. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Oh, God. Well, anyway. So that is the story of Danny Doss, also known as the Giggling Granny. Uh, one more time, thank you, Allie. Uh, it was amazing research. Crazy story. Yeah, this this one, this was a good story. Well, this was an interesting story, but thankfully it was not as horrifying and traumatizing as some of the other ones. Uh, I will say I am currently researching one that is going to mess you up. I'm sorry in advance. Uh, It's okay. I need to research one for next time, so I'll make it a really bad one. Oh, this one I'm just starting the research on, so it's going to be weeks. You'll forget all about it by then. Okay, fair. I'm still going to research a really bad one because I know that one's coming, so it's going to be the next one's just going to be really bad in anticipation of that one. So, Uh, Yeah, so that's our story. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. And next time is a Krakow Tale. Hooray! Trauma. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.